you would remain standing, open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're going to continue our study of John's Gospel together this morning. John chapter 12, we'll pick up in verse 12 and read through verse 19. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, may our hearts see you this morning, our King, humble, riding in on a donkey. And may we feel the weight of that in our lives and the beauty of it, the freedom of it, Lord, that we have a king, that we are subjects and servants of the Almighty. Lord, that's too much for us to do. Would your spirit be at work doing this? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, John took us in pretty, um, a pretty small venue into a dinner party and a house, Jesus having a meal with friends, in some ways this very ordinary scene that we all can relate to. Jesus anointed. This week, though, John backs out a little bit more, showing us something much more public. Jerusalem would have been swollen, we're told multiple times just in a few verses here that the crowds were there. By this time word had spread far and wide that this young itinerant preacher had been performing signs and wonders and those could no longer be denied by the population. During the Passover, the feast as held in Jerusalem, would have swollen the city to bursting. I've read this before, and I came across it again this week, 
Josephus, he, he may have been exaggerating, but he, he said something like 2.7 million people would have been there. Again, that, that could have been an exaggeration, but even if it were exaggerated, just temper that a little bit and imagine how many people would have been here. It was huge. Into this mix, we have this news that's dropping like crazy, like Twitter's going crazy and Instagram's going off. Hey, there was this dead guy. His name was Lazarus. We knew him. We knew he was dead, and he's been called to life. That's like a match put to this piece of dynamite. This is an explosive situation. We're meant to see all of that. In the middle of that, we know the, the conspiracy to kill Jesus. The Sanhedrin want him dead, and they've made it clear. Hey, if you know where he is, you come and tell us, because we'll arrest him. In the meantime, many are believing in Jesus. Despite all the resistance. Also in the backdrop of this particular text is the kingship of Israel. We have to think about this a little bit. Right now they have no true king. Of course they've had puppet kings, rulers uh, put in place. Um, but they have no true king and the people feel that keenly. God's people were always promised a king. Way back in God's covenant with Abraham, we read, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. God's people were meant to have a king. Having led them out of slavery in Egypt, God himself proved that he was their sovereign. He was their king. And yet we get to 1 Samuel 8. And they reject God as their king. We want to be like everybody else on the block. Give us a king. We feel uncool having no sovereign. God instructs Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, God says, from being king over them. From there we meet Saul who was not a good king and quickly dethroned, but then David comes. And in 2 Samuel 7, we read about his kingship in, in the greatest and most wide possible terms, this covenant of God with David. I will raise up your offspring after you, God says to David, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in some ways, in that we can see Solomon, right? The next king that was raised up and he built the temple, but Solomon did not live forever. And this text goes on and on and on that there will come a forever king, a kingdom that will never end and never fail. And all of those promises are felt by all these people in this swollen city. They're waiting on a king. The kingship was divided. It was an utter failure after Solomon. North and south. Who has the right to rule? 
And things get worse and worse and maybe a little bit better with the next guy and then worse after them until they're utterly wiped out. The north to Assyria, the south to Babylon. That's all in the backdrop of this text. Hope is again and again kindled in the Old Testament. Psalm 110, a king who rules over the nation is also a great priest. We have promises that God will establish his reign and the people are longing for it. The question is, who is this guy and when is he coming? I mean, we have to put ourselves a little bit in their place. Like, I'm trying to situate it a little bit historically so that we can feel the weight of what's going on here. These people would have born and lived their lives under an expectation of a coming king. And they so want it. Especially with the boot of Rome on their neck, they're, they're struggling. They're struggling with their identities, and a king would really fix all of this. So here we have the entry of Jesus into that scene. I call it the peaceful entry. Definitely triumph, absolutely, but it's peaceful. So we'll start there, and then we'll look at some various responses to his coming. We've already noticed that the setting is electric. It's charged. The next day the crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. News had spread. And, and that's significant because he's under threat of death. Listen, he's a king in this way. He doesn't run away. He charges in. He doesn't stay hidden. Yes, he's avoided arrest until the right time. He's, he's manipulated all these events knowing who he is and what he's coming to do. And instead of running away from this threat of death, he goes to it. For us, in our place, the next day, John says. Last week we saw that John begins to mark the days off the week, counting down the week of Passover. This would be the Sunday of Passover, Palm Sunday. So the crowd does something interesting. While gathering, they, they know that Jesus is coming. Uh, and we, we see this account in all four Gospels. And, and the detail that John provides here is not in the other Gospels. And yet it's real famous. What do you do on Palm Sunday? He waved palm branches, right? That's not in the other ones. It's only here. It's a, it's a detail that John brings out. Look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So we have to ask, what in the world's going on with the palm branches? Why? There's a, there's a veiled reference, maybe. Psalm 92, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. This could have some merit. But I think it's a little bit loose. We know something a lot more tight. When John has referenced uh, the revolt of the Maccabees before. When Syria had, had come in and the Maccabees revolted against them. 
They were effective at guerrilla warfare, and they eventually got Syria out of there. And what happened when Simon Maccabeus was coming back into the city, again, it would have been swollen, and excitement, it was electric, they, they took palm branches. And it became this national symbol of identity. This is us. Celebrating who we are and celebrating our liberation from a foreign force. We have been delivered. So that when John shows us the palm branches and the expectation of the people, we can connect the dots. They're like, here he is. He's going to kick out Rome. This is our new political leader. He's going to free us. So the crowds definitely have large expectation. But are they right? Is this the kind of king that Jesus is going to be? They're also shouting. They're waving these branches that are symbols of their desire to be free, of their notion of who they are as a people, but they're also saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, literally, save now. Save now. This cry comes directly out of Psalm 118, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So yes, their nationalistic hopes are also bound up together with salvation. We remember earlier, back in John, chapter 6, they wanted to make Jesus king back there, too. Do you remember that? Hey, this guy can feed 5,000 people from almost nothing. Isn't that amazing? Shouldn't we make this guy king? We would be crazy if we don't make him king. And they were going to make him king by force. Do you remember that? What did Jesus do then? He left. He went away quietly. He didn't take up that mantle. He didn't... He didn't want the kingship at that time. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So what is Jesus going to do with all these expectations of this loaded, explosive environment in Jerusalem? What's he going to do with it? Last time, he completely put it away. This time, he embraces all of it. He embraces all the symbols We see him come and not deny that he is king. In fact, we see him layering more symbolism into his kingship. He embraces it. In Luke's account, we're told that as he comes in in this way, it's very distinct and very particular. And the Pharisees say, hey, cut it out, Jesus. You're, You're causing problems. And do you remember how he responded there? He says, if they don't shout like this, the rocks will. Creation itself will explode with praise if these people do not shout. He is embracing it, far from denying it. He's the creator king of the universe. And he's taking it all on and saying, yes, this is me. What's different? 
Why deny earlier and now he willingly accepts? Because he knows the time is coming for him to be glorified. He knows that the hour is close. And he's jamming together his kingship with all the events that are coming ahead of this moment. He knows he's coming to die. Now's the time. Now's the time for me to be revealed as the king that I am. That's why he's willingly embracing it. Look at verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. There are so many things that we could say about Jesus coming in in this way. Often, and I'm just going to point out three, and this, the first one is kind of on its face what we understand and what we hear on Palm Sunday, and that's great, and that it's a symbol of humility. It utterly is. It's, it's kind of this upside-down notion of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is right for us to see that. It, it comes directly from the quote, what David read earlier humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yes, that that should shock us, in a sense. Here he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. John has been at pains to tell us just how great and how vast Jesus is. And here he is, riding into the city on this small donkey. Yes, that is one point for sure. But I want us to see some other aspects of this, that Israel had royal messianic expectations tied up with donkeys and kings. There's something about it in their history that has, should have given us clues that this is exactly the way the king is coming in. First, in Genesis 49, you remember near the end of Genesis, where Jacob is blessing all of his sons before his death, and he gets to Judah, the royal line, and he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed the garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The royal line of Judah, the prophecy that is over his life as he will rule. And one day he's going to pull up to the vineyard in his donkey. And there's going to be so much overflowing wine there that his, his garments are going to look like blood. That's in Genesis. The coming king is going to pull up in, in an overflowing blessing this vineyard. And the wine and the blessing of that is going to be so incredible, he's going to be covered in it. And it's going to look like blood. Think of Saul. Earlier I talked about 1 Samuel 8. Give us a king. God says, hey, they're rejecting me, we'll give them a king. Saul is the guy. 1 Samuel chapter 9, we find the beginning of that whole scene, Saul leaves his house, his father's house, looking for the donkeys that got away. Israel's 
first king. And by the way, it's very interesting, he couldn't find the donkeys. Samuel intervened in in between and and says, look, that's handled, they're already back home. He never never found them. It's very interesting, the first king, who wasn't a good king, couldn't find a donkey. And then this scene opens, how does John present the whole thing about him finding the donkey? Just that he found one. Their last and best king, the, the only other king that they would ever have, he succeeds. First Kings chapter 1. David is old. He's dying. One of his sons, Adonijah, was setting himself up to be king. He was throwing big parties. He was feeding lots of people. He was having big celebrations. He's like, I'm being coronated. And so everybody comes into David, especially Bathsheba and Nathan, and they're like, what are we going to do? You've already said, king, that the heir is to be Solomon. What are we going to do? Do you know what his plan was? He sets it up for them. Take with you the servants of your Lord, And have Solomon ride on my donkey and bring him down to Gihon. This is how kings enter. Jesus is fulfilling all these expectations of royalty. It's it's not just irony. It is that. It, It is humility. But it's also tied to expectation. He's intentionally saying, yes, it's me. I'm the one you need. There's another note about donkeys that we have to mention, and that is this. Coming in on a donkey means peace and not war. Peace, not war. Often in Scripture, even in the text we read earlier in Zechariah, we hear horses being instruments of war. Chariots. Here Jesus is is coming into the city as a king. He's conquering. He's triumphant. But he's coming in peacefully. The scriptures are clear that one day Jesus will come again. And then he will make war. And then he will be seated on a horse. Listen to Revelation 19. Just, Just listen. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are like, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, that image from Genesis 49. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen, he, he came in once on a donkey. And that is an announcement to the world. It's an announcement to us this morning. Peace. Peace. And one day, he's not going to bring peace. 
It will be peace for those with whom he is pleased. And destruction for others. So as we see the tiny donkey coming in and Jesus sitting on it, and as we hear the crowds shouting Hosanna, hear him say, peace. Peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. The announcement of his birth is the same as the announcement of him sitting on this donkey. Peace. What good news. Jesus has come to make peace. He has come to assuage the wrath of God against sin for his people. He has come to take our place. He has come to be treated like a sinner. The chastisement that was laid upon him brings us what? Peace. This is the announcement of the triumphal entry. This is why I call it the peaceful entry. He's coming saying, no more war between me and you. Notice again that John gives us this quote out of Zechariah. I want us to read the Zechariah verse again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? But listen to John's words. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Zechariah, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. John, fear not, daughter of Zion. He's taking liberty with the text. And I think what he's doing here is he's wanting to apply it. How can we apply this? How can we think about Jesus doing this incredible thing? How how are we to understand this peace that Jesus is announcing? He's telling us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because of him, because of this one seated on this donkey who's coming into the city. You can now live without fear. John knew that many in his day, just like our day, just like many of us gathered in this room this morning, have a lot of fear. They, like us, are tempted to rely on their own resources, a major cause for fear in their own strength, through trial, through sickness, through suffering, into all of these things, John is announcing this king of peace, this king of glory coming in means an end to fear. Fear not, the gracious king that you long for is here. Fear not, even though you feel like you are in chaos, Christ is bringing peace. Fear not, Though your health and your body fail and fade, you have an eternal king who is triumphant. Fear not, though this world feels unsteady all around you. Know that you have a good king who rode in to slay sin and death. Fear not, those who are in Christ will be saved. Fear not, your king rode in 
to conquer the fear of all fears, the terror of the wrath of God himself. Fear not, your king rode in to die. In less than a week, he would be dead. He rode in to die not because he deserved it. He rode in to die for the likes of us. Do we get it? Do we understand? Do we hear what John is doing with the text? Rejoice out loud, John is saying. Don't be afraid. Your king is here. Our king has come. Notice some of the reactions. The disciples, the crowd, the Pharisees. First, the disciples, they they don't get it at first. They didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to come in the city this way. His disciples did not understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. What does it mean they didn't understand until he's glorified? So he's saying there was this moment where all these disparate pieces kind of fell together for the disciples. It's kind of like a light bulb going off. You and I know this. We experience moments like this, and they were told when that moment was. It's when he was glorified. What is that about? John has given us hints all the way through his gospel. He keeps talking about there's going to be this moment. There's going to come this hour. There's going to come this day where Jesus will be glorified. And do you know what that hour, day, moment, that apocalyptic time is? It's a cross. It's a grave. And it's resurrection. Next week, we're going to hear Jesus himself say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Before, he said, not yet, not yet. It's not my hour. It's not my time. I'm going away. I'm going up the mountain. I'm leaving you. I'm not going to do all that. And now he's going for all of it. And his glorification is his death, burial, and resurrection. When they see that, they're going to get it. And all these pieces that are floating around and all these different things that Jesus has done and said are just going to fall right into place. And I imagine when that happened, they're utterly astounded. They can't believe how big he is, how glorious. John here is helping all of us understand as Jesus is writing in, do we feel and see and know the full weight of that? He is a king, but not like other political leaders of his day. He's been anointed, but not in halls of power but in the dining room of a friend. He will be crowned as king, but he will not receive that golden crown studded with jewels. He will receive a crown of thorns. He will be lifted up as king, but not lifted up to a throne seated over the people who he's ruling over. He will be lifted up on a tree where he's nailed. He will suffer and die and be buried all the while. He is not only king of Israel. He's not their political puppet. He is king of the universe. How can we think about the misunderstanding of the disciples? I don't know about you, but as I was thinking about the disciples not getting it, 
I was very encouraged because it said this to me, you don't have to get it all. We, we were already told by John back in chapter 2 that they believed. Listen, you don't, have to, you don't have to get it all. You don't have to understand. In fact, you will live your entire life this side of glory and not get it all. And that's okay. Take heart. The disciples didn't either. And they lived with him day in, day out, week in, week out for years. And they didn't get it all. And that's okay. Listen, if you, if you struggle with that as a disciple, be encouraged. Yes, faith should cause us to seek greater understanding. But you don't have to know everything. Believe. Next, notice the reaction of the crowds. There's two different crowds here. John tells us about these two crowds, and he's showing us how truth spreads. The first crowd has seen Jesus call Lazarus out. That's one crowd. And it says that one crowd goes and tells another crowd exactly what they saw, and that other crowd comes out. Isn't that interesting? He's giving us a model. He's saying, hey guys, this is the way this is going to work. You see the truth. You know the truth. And you're going to tell others the truth. And they're going to come to Jesus. That's exactly what the crowds do here. There's nothing fancy. It's simply this. Hey, guys, you won't believe this. This guy named Jesus, we saw him call somebody out of the grave who had been dead four days. and, And we saw that happen. That's it. And then huge crowds come. One crowd sees the truth, they go to another crowd who didn't see it and say, this is what happened, and they come. What a model. I think sometimes we just make event, and he's, John is telling us this for a reason. He wants us to be evangelists. What is evangelism? I think we've made it so complex. It's simply, here's the truth. This Jesus is the Son of God who lived and died and rose again, and I believe Come and meet him. This is what it means to be a martyr, a witness. Have we seen the risen Christ by faith? Go and tell others and simply introduce the other person to Jesus. He'll do the heavy lifting. You can't save anybody. John is giving us a model for how the gospel is spread. And this last response is of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said to one another, we're getting nowhere with this plot. We're getting nowhere. The world is now flocking to him. We already know that they're afraid, deathly afraid of losing their position and their place. This Jesus gets too big, we're all going to lose But I think John is also giving us another delicious irony. We were already told that Jesus came because of love for the world. Remember John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is his mission. And John, through the Pharisees, is saying, look, it's happening right now. The world is flocking to him. And I think John is wanting us to back away from the scene and see a much greater picture. 
the world for the past 2,000 years as the gospel has gone out, every nation, tongue, and tribe coming to him. Jesus did not fail. They're saying in this tiny little image, they're seeing all these different people, people from Israel, but people from all over coming, flocking to Jesus in in that tiny image. If we back away and look at the church and Jesus building his church, he's doing the exact same thing. This gathering this morning of believers is the world flocking to Jesus. I think there's another lesson we can learn from the Pharisees. Do we see the kingship of Jesus as a threat or something that we should desire? Kings are threats. Having a king means you don't get life your way. You get your life the king's way. He is absolutely a threat. As we prayed earlier, Thy kingdom come. Just rolls off the tongue. Thy will be done. Really? Are we sure? I think some days, many days, my heart is screaming, My kingdom come. My will be done. It's much harder to say, Thy kingdom come. The Pharisees are honest. Let your heart be honest too. How do you receive this king? He certainly will upset your life. Everything will change. Nothing in your world will be the same with this king who comes in. As we close, let's look at one more overarching detail that J.C. Ryle points out. I'll just read to you. He says this, We have a most willing and loving Savior. It was his delight to do the Father's will and to make a way for the lost and guilty man to draw near to God in peace. He loved the work that he had taken in hand and the poor sinful world which he came to save. Never then let us give way to the unworthy thought that our Savior does not love to see sinners coming to him and does not rejoice to save them. Jesus knows what's coming. And he rides in anyway. What love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're sinners and don't deserve it. You sent our king. And Jesus, you willingly undertook to come in to this threat of death that you did not deserve. And you did all of this because you loved us, the world that you made. Lord, may we see a glimpse of that in all its beauty and may our lives be changed because we have a king. Shape us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.